Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we explore biomechanical stem cells and the origin of life. But first up, here's the news. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is an international trade treaty that's so undemocratic and unfair that its contents are secret from the citizens of all 12 targeted countries. We only know about the parts that people of conscience have tipped to WikiLeaks. The price of medicine would no longer be negotiable for the pharmaceutical benefit scheme and the wait for affordable generic medicines would be much longer as patents get extended. Trade tribunals will trump national courts in any legal disputes. The trade tribunals have no human rights protections and can conduct secret hearings. The Democracy Centre has called such international arbitration a privatised justice system for global corporations. Even a temporary copy of a file is said to breach the owner's right to control the content and will be illegal. But every web browser works by downloading a copy of every web page, image, sound and video you see onto your hard drive temporarily to allow you to browse the web. It gives the Motion Picture Association of America a way to attack anyone, even if they never illegally download a movie. DVDs and Blu-ray discs are encoded to work only if you buy them in the country you live in through a deal with player manufacturers. An Australian can only play Region 4 DVDs even if you've legally purchased DVDs online from other regions, or previously lived in America or Europe, or legally bought some discs while travelling. At present, this is not enforced by Australian law, so you can buy region-free players and software to let you play your own legally bought movies on your own computer. Under the TPP, playing your own foreign movies would be illegal, and you'd have to throw away your foreign-bought discs even if no local version was sold. The Motion Picture Association of America put this system in place to profit from making us wait. Because they wrongly believed they would sell more. In response, Australians downloaded for free torrents of anything they couldn't buy, and the corporations lost profits anyway. Now, the networks and movie houses are starting to digitally distribute movies and shows within days of them being released in the US and UK, so there's no profit in the region system. Under the Trans-Pacific Partnership, region-free players and software become illegal for no reason. Hardware can cost almost twice as much to buy locally in Australia than it does to buy online and have shipped here. Software and media costs more to buy and download, despite the fact there are no shipping costs for a digital download. Getting around these country restrictions will be illegal under the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It will become illegal to install software on your own phone or tablet that isn't approved by the manufacturer first. Too bad if the manufacturer stopped updating your system. The TPP would make your internet provider your judge, jury and executioner 
with no court of appeal if any company accused you of copyright violation. You would just be cut off from the internet. The Investor State Dispute Settlement provision means that tobacco companies can sue the Australian government for its plain packaging and non-smoking laws. Similar rules have allowed Monsanto to sue the EU for banning a pesticide that kills the bees that pollinate crops. WikiLeaks Editor-in-Chief Julian Assange said if you read, write, publish, think, listen, dance, sing or invent, if you farm or consume food, if you're ill now or you might one day be ill, the TPP has you in its crosshairs. So what do we get in return for selling our democracy? Permission to sell sugar to the Americans. Kanote Tate is Professor of Biomedical Engineering in the Graduate School of Biomedical Engineering at the University of New South Wales. She was recently recruited to be the Paul Trainer Chair in Biomechanical Engineering. She spoke to me about how mechanical forces control the development of stem cells and how she's applied this insight to healing bones with biomechanical implants. We live in a very mechanical world uh, by virtue of our gravitational environment. Every cell in our body is exposed to mechanical forces. And even without gravity, the cell-to-cell interactions and the interactions between cells, which are fluid-filled sacs that are alive, and their environment also cause biophysical forces, which we think in normal terms is compression, tension, and shear. And so biomechanics refers to this both from the level of the cells all the way up to the level of our skeleton. And recently, we've started to describe biomechanics more as mechanobiology, um, referring in that way to the influence of mechanics on the biological system. And so the cells actually change the proteins they express from the genes they have, depending on the mechanical environment and what they're experiencing. Absolutely. It's just fascinating. You know, a lot of us don't think about how adaptive biology is and anything living is biological and anything living, although it may seem to stay the same from day to day, it's actually adapting exquisitely over time. So we see this very remarkably in our children or in our pets or perhaps in the the plants in our garden, but uh, maybe don't think about it in that way. And uh, certainly it has a huge effect on, on both healing as well as growth and development. And so these mechanical influences affect the way our cells behave all through our lives? Yes, remarkably. They affect not only through growth and development. If we think about development in utero. I mean, if we go back to the sperm and the egg and we think about how absolutely remarkable it is that we have this complex organism that comes out of two cells. And how does that come about? The patterning that goes on to the formation of a skeleton uh, replete with muscles and, and neural connections and all of these things. It's really such a complex system. And when I was an undergraduate, I, we learned all about 
this system, these cells which build the tissue, which manufacture the tissues, which make up the organs and the systems of our organism. When I was an undergraduate, we learned that a lot of this was pre-programmed, that it's just all pre-programmed in our genes. Um, and it turns out that it's not all just pre-programmed. We do have our genes, but the environment to which each cell is exposed has an exquisite effect on the way that that cell behaves and in fact shapes what the cell is to become. So this is at the level of a stem cell, which doesn't yet know what it is to become. And these cells don't have brains. It's not like our children who have brains and get trained and become specialists at whatever they're going to do in their lives. These cells essentially adapt with time, and it's that adaptation which we're finding is driving their behavior and driving their ultimate phenotype, which is their differentiated state, or in other words, their specialized state, whether they're a bone cell or a nerve cell or a muscle cell. And so that also influences the way that they grow together to become organs. Absolutely. If you think about initially, you've got these two cells. The cells are always in contact with each other. The cells are always interacting with each other. So their most immediate environment is their neighbors, as well as the fluid environment that joins them all. And so you actually use wind tunnels with cells. <laughs> yes. So if you think about uh, the way that uh, airplane wings are developed or the way that hot sports cars or even not so hot, just very energy efficient cars are developed. Typically what mechanical and aerospace engineers do is they build small models of their uh, ultimate system, the chassis of the car or the airplane wing, and they place it in a wind tunnel to understand drag forces and on the geometry and on the uh, mechanical environment or the flow over, for example, the airfoil. We use similar fundamental engineering principles to understand the cell's mechanical environment, how the cell reacts to that environment, and what the cell does, When what we've shown recently, we've known it for a long time. There's been a lot of research, particularly if we think about cells of our circulatory system, so cells that make up our blood vessels. We've known for a long time that they align with flow, that they react to flow, but what's quite interesting, we've also just shown recently that our stem cells are exquisitely sensitive to these same kinds of mechanical cues. And what they do is their gene transcription of structural proteins, and I'm talking about things like collagen and elastin, the things that make our skin and our bones and our tissues tough and elastic. Well, the gene expression of these proteins has changed dramatically in response to very subtle mechanical cues. So the cells themselves then build around themselves, almost like a caterpillar with a cocoon. That changes in turn the mechanical environment. So in a way it buffers the cell, the mechanical environment gets modulated, and the cell either um, just persists or continues to adapt. So, so the two are very related. You can actually influence the stem cells and the cells without having to feed them chemicals. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So I always, I always emphasize to my students that we want to understand nature, we want to mimic nature, we want to drive natural processes, but we want to do so without engineering ourselves out of existence. And if we think about some, some possibilities that we could use either with chemicals or with genetic manipulation, 
to drive these processes. Some of these things we're not sure about the downstream effects, which might not be good. The nice thing about mechanical cues, as far as we can tell, um, they're rather benign. It's like doing an exercise program to build specific muscular strength. We're trying to define libraries of mechanical cues that we can deliver to cells to get targeted differentiation and in that way to facilitate or to enable healing. So you've been applying this work to healing bone injuries. Yeah, so um, bones are really interesting material as well. It's literally a hard material, and, and because of this hardness and opaqueness of bone, in many ways our understanding of the basic physiology of bone is, has, has taken longer than some other tissues like our blood vessels or our heart. And so we're trying to understand how bone heals, and one of the hardest injuries for an orthopedic surgeon or a tumor surgeon to treat is if you're missing a big piece of bone. And this might occur if you, if you have a tumor and they resect the tumor, or if you have trauma, for instance, a motorcycle injury where there's an open fracture and a piece of bone is literally left on the highway, or an infection, or in some cases, a congenital defect. And so um, working together with an orthopedic surgeon, uh, we've, we've started to understand, to test and to understand how, for instance, stem cells can build bone and can build uh, bone very rapidly in critical size defects. A critical size defect is a defect in the bone or a hole in the bone that won't heal on its own without a surgical intervention. And quite remarkably, we've shown in bone, you, you have a soft tissue or sock-like sleeve that adheres to the outer surfaces of all bones in your body. Uh, this sock-like sheath is a habitat for stem cells, and the stem cells are found even in aged individuals. If we look at the periosteum of bone from joint replacement patients, so the, the femoral head and neck are removed to put in a, hip, a new hip, in elderly patients or aged patients. And then we look in this periosteal tissue and we can isolate these stem cells in that tissue as well. And what's quite interesting is that these cells show the same regenerative power as bone marrow stem cells. So it's a new source of stem cells that hasn't been considered previously. Uh, certainly in Europe uh, and in Australia, the idea of using cells from the neonates cord blood, so um, when a baby's born, taking the cord blood and, and banking that for future use has become popular. But if you think about aged adults or even middle-aged adults missing that opportunity because they were just born a generation too late to take advantage of it, we now may have new opportunities by, by uh, harvesting cells from the periosteum, for instance, at the time of joint replacement. Uh, for future regenerative medicine purposes. And when you're looking at applying these, not only are you doing the work in the experiments in the lab, but you're actually speeding things up by using computer models as well. Biological systems are really complex. Not only are they complex at all these different length scales, from the nano to the micro to the meter length scale, they're also complex because they change over time. So there's at any one time point, they're different. So if you think about having one lifetime to do 
a series of experiments. I might be able to do thousands of experiments, but I might miss some critical experiments even with a lifetime worth of knowledge. With computer models, we can simulate different experiments and we can use the results, the predictions from those models to inform us what would be the, to set priorities for future experimentation. What experiments are likely to give the most important and influential results. And so typically in my group, because I am an engineer and a biologist, uh, we have tools both from a computational modeling skill set, which is basically just like building virtual models of our bones, of our cells. We also have all these biological tools, and we have these sophisticated imaging tools. And by using them all in concert, we can then really start to understand these complex systems and how they behave. And then ultimately, we hope to be able to control them to an extent to, to improve healing outcomes and to improve life. So when I went through college, it was the world of uncovering the genome. That was, that was the, the big point, and it resulted in fantastic discoveries. But at the same time, as we started to realize how important the genome is, we also started to realize how important what we call epigenetics is. And epigenetics relates to the not pre-programming in a genetic fashion, but the way that the environmental cues affect transcription of our genes, which ultimately affects behavior. So that gets back to this whole concept of the environment having an important effect on genetic outcomes and ultimately on the behavior of the biological system. So in my group and in other groups now, we, we, we're trying to to map what we call, rather than the genome, we call it the mechanome. So we're trying to map the mechanome, or in other words, libraries of mechanical cues that we can deliver to stem cells to achieve targeted outcomes, whether they be bone cells or, or generation of heart cells or generation of blood cells. And you've actually applied your experiments from computer models to animals to successful surgery on humans. That's right. So a hallmark of my lab is that we, we really go from the most fundamental work. And it's interesting because although applied science and applied engineering is very, very important, it's the fundamental discoveries, this long-term approach that will result in new technologies and new industries for the future. So it's so important in science and engineering to take a long-term view because in addition to having those very applied approaches, which we do as well, we develop technologies and we develop products that can be commercialized and brought to the market in the next five years. But if we want to have future markets and future economies, we also need to take the long-term view. And just anecdotally, as a senior Humboldt fellow in Germany during my sabbatical year in 2000, 2011, I had the pleasure of uh, being at the annual meeting of the Humboldt Foundation where uh, Angela Merkel, uh, the Chancellor of Germany, spoke. And she actually has her PhD in physics. She has a phenomenal 
understanding of technology and science and I was just so appreciative and so in awe of her approach and un understanding of the importance of science and engineering and this long-term view that investment in science and engineering is so important for the future of the economy as well as the, the, the future lives of the citizens of the country and of the world. And so thinking both in terms of applications to products now and to medical care now, but also thinking for the next generation, having those economies and those industries being ready, being on the cusp and at the leading edge to develop those for the future. And Germany's been very successful at that. If you think of the solar industry, where they got into the technology and the fundamental understanding very early on and then became a leader in the field. I would just like to encourage young people, kids, to get as involved in their own world and in nature as possible and to pursue math and science at school as a pathway to, to understanding their world, but also to, to being the leaders of the future, because no matter what they do, I think Angela Merkel is a really great example. We need to have not only people developing the new products and technologies for the future, but we also need to have leaders who understand science and technology because it touches every aspect of our lives. Well, Melissa Knotte-Tate, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Melissa Knotte-Tate, explaining how mechanical forces interact with stem cells and how this led to healing bones with implants. Look to diffusionradio.com for video and links on Melissa's work. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio with Ian Wolfe. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, John August investigates the role of catalysts in the origins of life. I've been intrigued by the origins of life and what it does. A lot of what life is about keys on what enzymes or catalysts do, and when I first looked into it, I was a bit puzzled and didn't quite understand what it was all about. The first thing to keep in mind is that while catalysts do speed things up, as far as life is concerned, they do something else that is also very important. They change the resultant chemical makeup or the distribution of concentrations of the products of the reaction. If you add chemicals together randomly, which is what I guess the reactions preceding life would do, you might end up with perhaps a thousand different chemicals with uh, the concentration evenly spread between them. But if you add a catalyst, you might find that 99% of the resultant chemicals are distributed between three chemicals and the remainder, you know, close to a thousand, are spread over that tiny, tiny 1%. Um, that's different to what happens when we do normal chemical reactions because there's only one or two uh, uh, reactants which we want to take to their natural uh, conclusion as rapidly as possible. And so then we normally only think of enzymes as or catalysts as speeding up the reaction. But when with life, you basically don't have the luxury of isolating one or two uh, reactants to react together. You're basically dealing with a much more complicated situation. The next thing is that part of biology means putting things into a higher energy state. 
and normally what catalysts do is speed up a reaction going towards a lower energy state. What you might do is heat something up where uh, at this high energy state um, sheer statistical obligation obliges some of the chemical products to be in that high energy state and then you cool it down and basically try to store what you've done. That's a bit like cooking but uh, don't push the metaphor or I'll be embarrassed. But with this challenge, what does life actually do in order to make higher energy molecules? Now those higher energy molecules are in fact our protein chains that are composed of amino acids, our DNA chains which are composed of the uh, DNA base, base pairs. Now the answer is that some of what we might normally call enzymes or catalysts are not catalysts in the usual sense of the word, I'll listen to biochemists who want to pick over definitions. Here the enzymes are more like a jig that also uses an energetic molecule to provide the energy to push the other molecules together in order to make a polymer or basically a chain of amino acids or a chain of base pairs. Here the enzyme provides a template for three molecules, the two you're going to join together and a third one which provides them with the energy to join together. And just what is this molecule? It's called ATP or adenosine triphosphate. Now yes carbohydrates do store energy in the body, in the cell and uh, tied together in the right way as cellulose they provide uh, some structural support for plants. But ATP molecules are the bearers of energy that do real work inside the cell. They're the reason why cells can put together high energy chains without heating. That's what we'd be obliged to do in regular chemistry. It's one of the fundamentals of life and it must have developed very early in its history. That was John August talking about catalysts and the origins of life. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Contributing to Diffusion this week was John August. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Like our Facebook page and please leave a comment. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karengai. We're syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Coming up are more interviews on stem cells. So if you've got any questions for stem cell researchers, please send them to science at diffusionradio.com. Diffusion is funded solely by the fixed income Bank of Ian, which lacks any kind of business model. Please contact me at science at diffusionradio.com to suggest a business model. Help with applying for grants or if you'd like to sponsor the show. Or look to the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.